good morning. How are you guys doing? All right, hopefully you had a great Christmas and a great New Year, and uh, I want to say welcome back. It's good to be back. Uh, I certainly missed gathering together, and uh, I'm really looking forward to all that God is going to do in this year, 2012, uh, as we look forward to uh, what God is going to do, how he's going to work in our lives and through our ministry. And uh, I got dressed up today. Many of you commented on how uh, great I look, and I appreciate those comments. And you might wonder why on the first Sunday that we're gathering together in the new year, why would I dress up? There's two reasons. Uh, The first is I haven't preached in a while, and when you preach good, you look good. When you look good, you preach good. They just go hand in hand. And so, uh, you know, so that's terrible grammar, but it's true. And so I wanted to look good to give you a great kind of opening message of 2012. Uh, But the second reason, and perhaps a more compelling reason, is um, this is what I would have worn had I gone to a really fancy New Year's Eve party, but I didn't. Instead, I went to this little thing called Little Midnight. Have you heard of this? It's a, it's a Cool Beans Playhouse, and you gather your toddler together, and instead of dropping the huge ball, you drop balloons, and you toast with juice boxes. And you do all of that at 6 p.m. Okay? Absolutely amazing. This event blew me away. The DJ is playing like blaring music, really bright lights on the dance floor. The kids are dancing. There's a bubble machine. I mean, this is off the hook. And the DJ is playing mumbo number five. And who let the dogs out? And I'm just sitting there like totally blown away by this whole thing. And so I thought, actually, this event, this event, y'all, was epic. It was epic to be there at Little Midnight. So I encourage you to go uh, next year. Uh, if, even if you don't have any little ones, go to Little Midnight. It's only from 4 to 6. It'll rock your world, and you'll be a better person for it, okay? So had I gone to a really fancy party, this is what I would have worn, and so I wanted to wear it for all of you. Got it? Y'all, you guys are like, you got, you got to treat me better than this, okay? All right, so Advent Conspiracy. We've been doing that for several weeks, and uh, you guys have heard all about that. And we're building wells. We're giving money to build wells to villages in Africa that don't have a sustainable source of clean water. And uh, as of today, uh, we are prepared to give away 7100 Let me make sure I get the number right. $120. $7,120 given away to provide clean water uh, for people in Africa. So that is awesome. That's awesome. Thousands of lives will be changed because of your generosity this Christmas, because this group of people and some of your family members decided to do Christmas differently. Thousands of people across the world will experience clean water that is sustainable. This isn't just a uh, give someone a, uh, some food. This is teaching them to fish. This is a sustainable source of change in their life. And so we are so thankful for that. We're going to continue accepting gifts uh, for Advent Conspiracy throughout the rest of this month. We know that December, for many of you, is a really tight time financially, and maybe you wanted to give and you weren't able to give, uh, or maybe you just haven't heard about this movement and you want to participate in it with, in it with us. Uh, so there's a couple ways you can give. You can give by check. Just mark on the memo, Wells or Advent Conspiracy.
conspiracy. Uh, you can give cash, but just make sure and put that in an envelope that's in front of you uh, and mark that Advent conspiracy as well. So we're going to be accepting gifts clear through the rest of this month uh, in order, and then we'll send that check off and uh, pray uh, that, that uh, God's kingdom will come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven as we send that money away. That's why we do what we do uh, every day, but that's particularly why we do what we do uh, every Christmas, okay? So this morning is the start of a brand new series that we're calling The Road to Freedom. Uh, the Road to Freedom, it's a practical series designed to help you live into the freedom that you have in Christ. And, and I just want to share uh, some good news with you that through faith in Christ, we are made free. We can be made free. We are made free. And, and, but sometimes we don't do a very good job of living into that freedom. And so this series, the next four weeks, is intended to be giving you tools and practical tools to be able to live into the freedom that you have in Christ through faith in him. Uh, now, I know what some of you are expecting based on the name of the series, The Road to Freedom. You are expecting that I will give you over the course of the next four weeks, four steps to freedom in Christ. I'm not going to do that. Uh, you're expecting that I would give you like the, the kind of the roadmap or a formula that if you do this and you add a little bit of this and you add a splash of this, then it will equal this in your life. And that's not what I'm going to do either because many of you have set resolutions. You're one week in and you're on the brink of losing it already, right? So the last thing you need are some steps. The last thing you need are resolutions. The last thing you need is a formula because God isn't a formula. He's a person and thus we can't live our lives for him in a formulaic way. So I'm not going to give you steps. I'm not going to give you a formula, but what I am going to give you are foundations for freedom. I'm going to give you foundations to build on, to begin to experience freedom as you walk on the journey toward or the road to freedom. And so really, uh, I'm going to be giving you freedom foundations. Let me give you a roadmap of where we're headed today. Uh, we, we decided the to take a little bit of a um, topical view from, from of how, what are the things that enslave us the most typically? And then how can we begin to experience freedom over those things or freedom from those things? And so the, the roadmap for the series is this. Today we're going to talk about experiencing freedom from insecurity. Next week is freedom from anxiety. And some of you are already worried about that. The third week, we're going to talk about experiencing freedom from addiction. And then the fourth week, I'm not going to tell you, you'll just have to come. I'm just kidding. I'm, we're going to experience freedom, financial freedom. And uh, the reason I joked about not telling you is because some of you are like, he's going to be talking about money in four weeks. What's that date? Write it down. Oh, I'm sick that day. Don't be sick that day. Okay? Be here every single week of this series and bring a friend, anybody that you know that needs to experience freedom. This is a perfect series for them. Okay? And I also believe it's a perfect series for you and for all of us as we deal with these things and seek to truly live into the freedom that we have in Christ. So before we look at freedom foundations, though, we got to have a foundation for freedom. Huh? 
That's pretty good, okay? Before we jump right in, we've got, to, we've got to set the foundation of the kind of freedom that we have in Christ. We've got, to, we've got to get a hold of this truth of how free we are through faith in him. And so I want to read to you. You don't have to churn here, uh, but I want to read to you John chapter 8, verses 31 through 36. And this is not my text for today. We're actually going to be in the Old Testament when we jump into insecurity. But I want to give you a foundation for the freedom that we have in Christ. John chapter 8. 31 through 36 said this. Now to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And then you will know the truth and that truth will set you free. Now they answered him, when we, we are Abraham's descendants and we have never been slaves of anyone. So how can you say that we shall be set free? Their their logic is, if I was never enslaved to anything, then I certainly can't be set free from anything. As Jesus answers this in this way, he says, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin, and now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. And so if the son sets you free, then you are truly free free. Jesus answers using the the difference between a son and a slave. And he says, if you are a slave, then you are truly not, you are not a permanent part of the family. But if you are made into a son, then you are permanently part of that family. And if the son has set you free, then truly you are free indeed. In other words, freedom in Christ is about being moved from slavery into sonship. That through faith we are adopted as a child of God and we are given the right to all that belongs to God, all that belongs to Christ. For if we are made and brought into and made part of and adopted into the family of God, then we are in fact heirs with God. That everything that belongs to him is made available to us. Every resource, every power that brought Christ out of the grave is made available to you in your life to overcome the anxiety, to overcome the insecurity, to overcome the addiction, to begin to manage our finances in a way that honors God. That if he has set you free, then you are truly free. And if you have, through faith, come to know Christ, then all the resources of God have been brought into your life. All these things have been made available to you so that you may experience freedom in Christ. But so many times, enslavement or slavery masquerades as freedom. That we feel like that we, that we can do sort of whatever we want and, and we abuse God's grace through license. We can do whatever we want. We can live however we want. Some people, I heard an old preacher say, you can live like hell and still get to heaven, right? It's somehow how we believe. We believe that, that God's grace is a license in our life to do however we want, to live however we want, and we misunderstand that as freedom when actually we are enslaved. And so through his, through faith in him, through the power made available to us by that faith, we are given the possibility and in fact the reality to live truly free. 
that is free to live fully for his kingdom, set free from the grip of sin on our hearts. Now notice I did not say set free from the possibility of sinning in our life, but the power of sin, the grip of sin, the rule of sin in our hearts through faith is is brought down, dethroned, and Christ put in its place. And so the power and the grip of sin is broken, and we are set free from that. Free to obey God, free to experience victory, free to overcome, so that I may be called a child of God, and in fact, an overcomer. Now, there's other passages, and this is just a a sampling of what I want to give to you to help give you a foundation of the true freedom that we have in Christ, for this is good news. And if, if the followers of Christ could learn to live truly free, then, then, the, then our witness and the kingdom of God would begin to explode. And so this is really a, a series designed to set loose the move of the Spirit in your life and in this church and in our lives together as a community as we seek to live truly free. Listen to this sampling of, of, the, of the Scripture that talks about moving from sonship to slavery and the freedom that we have in Christ. Romans 8, 1 through 4, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and who, who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weakened through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The righteousness that we have is not of our own. It is brought to us through Christ. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman and born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are his sons, God has set forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, that we might cry out, Abba, Father, and therefore we are no longer a slave, but we are a son, and then we are an heir to God through Christ Jesus. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, stand fast, therefore, in the the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again to the yoke of bondage. Paul is encouraging in that passage, the Galatians, the the church at Galatia, he's saying, you have experienced this great freedom in Christ. You've been given all of this and you're going to go back there? You're going to continue to be in bondage when freedom has already been brought and is made available to you and, in fact, is already yours in Christ Jesus? You want to go back there? But the reality is, as I, see, as I look at my own life and as I look at the lives of other people, as I counsel them and talk with them from a pastoral perspective, I've realized this truth. Freedom is not always easy. That living in freedom, the freedom that we have in Christ, it is not always easy. We're set free, but we don't live very well in freedom. Instead, we live in slavery to things like insecurity, anxiety, addiction, financial captivity, and a host of other things. And so this series is designed to give us freedom foundations by which we can build on that we might experience greater and greater degrees of the freedom that is made available to us in Christ.
And while freedom is not always easy, let me say this to you right at the front of this series. When you experience the true freedom that we have in Christ, we begin to long for slavery less and less. That when we begin to experience freedom, it draws us in further and further. But the problem, I think, for many Christians is that we never get to the point where we're truly experiencing victory and freedom in Christ and we live in this messy, mucky middle ground, never moving to the true taste of freedom that would bring us deeper into that freedom. And instead, we just sort of live in this middle and we say, this is how it's always going to be. But I would argue that Jesus did not die on the cross so that you can live a mediocre life. Jesus died a bloody death and defeated sin and defeated death through the resurrection so that you and I might stand in the freedom that he has made available to us. So that's the foundation of freedom. I'm going to pray for us before we jump into our topic for this morning. And uh, I've already been preaching a while, and so just settle in because I'm, you know, I'm, I haven't preached a while, so I'm going to do a double or triple header here, okay? So just kind of settle in, and let me pray for us as we begin to explore this, this thing about insecurity. God, you are good, and we give you praise for the freedom that we have in you. And God, my prayer for this series is that each and every one of us would begin to experience greater and greater degrees of your freedom that is made available to us. And Father, we recognize our brokenness, we recognize our humanness, and that our tendency is to move back into slavery because it's comfortable, it's what we know. But God, may we taste your freedom, that we might begin to experience more and more of it, that we might begin to experience more and more victory, that we might overcome the things that enslave us. And God, I pray today that there would be people that would be set free from insecurity, that you would give them the foundation, uh, a freedom foundation that would pierce their hearts, that would give them an assurance of your love, that they might move forward in confidence of who they are in you. And so God, anoint my words today. Translate them into every person's heart that they might hear precisely what you're saying to them. God, we believe that your word is powerful and that every time we open your word and preach it, there is change that is possible. And so, God, would you bring about change in our lives today? We love you and we give you thanks and praise. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, insecurity is probably one of the more universal uh, things that enslave us, right? Uh, we all, on some level, I would argue, deal with insecurity. Even those of us that we would say we are the most confident. Uh, we, we lift our shoulders high and, and we believe in, in who we are in Christ. It's possible and it's likely that insecurity will begin sneaking in there in some way or another. And I, and I believe that this is a problem. Uh, because we live in such a culture that, that tells us precisely how we ought to look, how we ought to act, what we ought to know. And, and so many of us will go through life believing that we're not tall enough, we're not skinny enough, we don't have the right color of eyes, we're not talented enough, we don't talk right, we don't have all these kinds of things, right? And we, we allow those things to draw in us and, and root in us this insecurity that ultimately makes us ask the question, Do, am I really good enough? 
Do I really count? Am I really valuable, right? Because if I have enough of these things stacked up against me, like if I'm not tall enough and I'm not skinny enough, then all of a sudden I've got two things stacked against me and I'm ultimately, I must not be valuable. Ultimately, I must not count. And so we deal and we ultimately ask the question, am I even good enough, Right? And I believe that it comes from this culture, this, these cultural messages that we're getting all the time telling us how we ought to look. You ought to be this skinny. Guys, you ought to be this muscular. You ought to have this kind of ab. And in fact, abs. And in fact, what they do then is culture will give us tools so that we can become precisely the picture that we're supposed to be. Right? Ultimately, though, those tools are lies. I don't know if you know that, but late night television, infomercial stuff, it's a lie. The magic bullet does not make uh, guacamole in three seconds. I have one. I'm here to tell you it is not what it says it is. What culture wants to do is it wants to tell us all these things that if you buy this product, if you, if you use this cream, if you go to this gym, then you'll have this perfect image. And it, it seeds in us this insecurity. And the insecurity doesn't just come from how we look, although that's probably the most predominant in our culture the insecurity comes from all kinds of other things. The, the way in which we communicate, the way in which we accomplish, right? Have I accomplished enough to count? Have I accomplished enough to be valuable? And part of what I want to say to you today is, is that God's measuring stick of value is completely different than what we get from the culture all the time. The messages that come so, so strongly and so profoundly and so deeply at us are on a completely different spectrum of measuring value than how God measures value. And so I want us to, to get a hold of, of this. Now, um, in, in the scripture, we could point to almost any character that has struggled with insecurity. I mean, there is no shortage of, of passages where a character in the Bible is, is dealing with insecurity of what God has called them to do. So uh, there's certainly no shortage. And when I came to preach this passage, I sort of had my pick uh, of what character uh, I want to look at. And uh, I believe the story of Gideon is really powerful, so I want to look at that. So Judges chapter 6, you can turn in your Bibles there with me, or there's a Bible somewhere in your neighborhood uh, underneath the chairs. Uh, and also we're going to have the scripture up front uh, on the screens, but I believe that the story of Gideon can absolutely uh, transform our lives as we look at it together. And so I want to read Judges chapter 6, uh, verses 11 through 16. Judges 6, 11 through 16. Uh, now it says this, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak of Orpah, that was before she had her show, uh, that belonged to Joash, the Abirazrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in the wine press to keep it from the Midianites. And when the angel of the Lord appeared to them, he said, the, the, uh, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now pardon me, my Lord, Gideon said, but if the Lord is with us, why have all, has all of this happened to us? And where are all of his wonders that our ancestors have told us about when they said, did the Lord not bring us up out of Egypt? And But now the Lord has abandoned us and he's given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him, go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? 
Now, pardon me, my Lord, again, Gideon says, but how can I save Israel? For my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. But the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down the Midianites together. Now, there's a detail in this story that if you were aware of it, uh, if you knew it, it would absolutely blow your mind. So are you ready for this? The detail that sort of frames the entire story is that Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press. None of you are taking notes. Come on now. What does that mean? Well, threshing wheat is when they move, remove the kernel from the stalk of the wheat. And they usually do this on the threshing floor. They're threshing wheat on the threshing floor. And it's a hard, flat surface at the edge of town, typically at a rock outcropping. Now, if you've ever been on an outcropping of rock, uh, probably you have since you live in Colorado, you know that it tends to be very windy there. Right, And so typically what would happen is when Israel was threshing wheat, they would go to a rock outcropping at the edge of town. They would thresh their wheat so that when they separated the kernel, the stalk would just be taken by the wind. It was a much more efficient way of of threshing wheat. And so here's Gideon. He's threshing wheat, but he's threshing it not on the threshing floor, but he's threshing it in the wine press. What's the wine press? A wine press is a hole in the ground where they press the juice out of grapes to make the wine. So instead of Gideon being on the threshing floor, threshing the wheat, he's in a hole in the ground, threshing wheat. What's wrong with this picture? And why is he there? Well, let me give you a little bit of background. Uh, Israel was a nation of God that had been brought up uh, in order to be a light to the nations. And so, but but early on in the story, they found themselves enslaved by Egypt. And so God miraculously sets them free. They walk through the Red Sea. Uh, Then they wander in the wilderness a little while. Eventually, in the book of Joshua, they're given their land. Uh, The land that had been promised to them and their role, their commission, their mission, so to speak, is to go and and be this nation that proclaims the goodness of God, the word of God, and the name of God to all the other nations. It's to be a light to the nations is the role and commission of Israel, which, of course, they don't do a very good job of. They are in this cycle. When we get to the book of Judges, ultimately what happens later on in Judges is we notice this cycle of Israel where they uh, find themselves in trouble. They cry out to God. God rescues them, but then they disobey God. And so God gives them over to their enemies, which they cry out to God. And and the cycle goes on like this. Well, where we are in the cycle now is that Israel has once again disobeyed God. God has said, because of your disobedience, I'm going to allow the Midianites to come in and totally savage your land. Take everything, every resource from you, and nothing will be yours. The Midianites will be your enemies, and they're going to come, and they're going to, they're going to, they're going to ravage the land. And so they do. And so for Gideon, the Midianites are truly an enemy. And he's in the wine press threshing wheat for fear of the Midianites. He's afraid. Now, I don't know about any of you, but I wonder if there is an enemy in your life or a challenge in your life, something that you see as insurmountable, unbeatable. 
And instead of going to the threshing floor, you're stuck in the wine press. And God wants you to be up in the threshing floor where you should be for what you're doing. But instead, in fear, you are hiding in a hole in the ground in the wine press. And it's insecurity that has brought you there. I don't know if that's true for any of you. But there have been times in my life where facing an enemy, facing a challenge, instead of rising up to the challenge, and instead of going about the work where it should be done on the threshing floor, I hide myself in the wine press. See, this this whole thing, this idea of, of threshing wheat in a wine press frames the story of Gideon. And then something very uh, peculiar happens. The angel of the Lord appears to him as he's fearful, as he's a wimp in a wine press. An angel of the Lord appears to him and sits down. Now, to make his announcement... Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm nervous about the enemy getting me, so much so that I'm willing to, to thresh wheat in a wine press, and so much so I'm so fearful that I'm willing to hide in a hole in the ground, I'm not thinking, I'm not relaxed. But here the angel of the Lord comes to make this incredible pronouncement over Gideon, and the angel sits down. What we know about this is that God is not worried about the things that you're worried about. Is that good news today? Some of you are so scared. Some of you are so worried. And we're going to talk about worry specifically next week. But some of you are so worried that you've hidden yourself in a wine press. And God comes into your situation and he sits down as a way of saying, you know what? I have everything taken care of. I've already seen where this is going. I've already seen the other side of the challenge. I'm not worried about the things that you're worried about. Some of you find yourselves completely frozen with indecision, hiding in a wine press, wondering what is going to happen next. And God wants to say to you today, I'm sitting down in your presence. Because the things that you're worried about don't worry me quite as much. Because I'm the God of the universe and I have every resource to take care of it. I've already seen the other side. I know where this thing is headed. And you know what the angel does in that moment after he sits down? He makes a pronouncement over Gideon and he calls this wimp in a wine press a mighty warrior. <laughs> what? A mighty warrior? Really? This dude threshing wheat in a wine press, the angel comes into their situation and pronounces something over them that seems to be totally incongruent with how he sees himself. And so how does that happen? How in the world can God see us, see Gideon in one way, and Gideon see himself in a completely other way? I mean, they're total opposite ends of the spectrum. One is mighty warrior, and the other one is wimp in a wine press, fearful of his enemies, threshing wheat in a, in a hole in the ground. Well, I believe this, and I, this, is, this is one of the truths that I want to share with you today. The difference And the reason that God can call him something totally different from how he sees himself. The difference is perspective. Because because God is not in 
the hole in the ground. But sometimes when we dig that hole for ourselves, we can't hardly see above the top of the hole. And it corrupts our vision. And it corrupts our perspective. And so God comes into our situation and sits down to give us the assurance that he has everything in control, that he's not worried about the things that we're worried about. And then he makes a pronouncement over your life and he calls you something completely different than how you see yourself. And I believe today that if we could just get a handle and come to believe the things that God pronounces over us, to come to see yourself as God sees you, it would make all the difference in the world. Because some of you are hiding in your wine press, believing that you're not good enough, that you don't have the right this, that you can't communicate well enough, that you don't have the skills to do what God has called you to do, that you don't look the right way. And the insecurity has, has, has essentially dug a hole in your life. And God is saying, I want to raise your perspective up. And I'm going to call you something that you don't see yourself yet. But I believe that if I call you this, and I, if I reveal how I feel about you, then that will help lift your perspective. But here's one of the things that happens. And I've, I've seen this happen in my own life. And again, I've seen it happen in other people's life. That... When our perspective is corrupted, it leads to comparison. When our perspective, because we're in a hole and we're insecure about who we are and who God has called us to be and and we're insecure about our, our talent or our looks or whatever and we're wondering, am I good enough? Am I valuable? Do I count in this world? We Our perspective, when our perspective is corrupted, it leads to comparison. And so what we do is we look at other people and we begin to think lower of ourselves based on what we see in their life. And we think, man, they landed a great job and I'm stuck at working at Chick-fil-A. And the benefits are pretty good because I get free chicken, but this isn't what I wanted to do with my life. Right? Come on, Chick-fil-A. Can I hear an amen? amen? Yes. I'm preaching now, huh? Someone else got the promotion. I mean, I was up for it, and I thought I was right there, and I didn't know. I, I mean, I was sort of insecure about whether I had really had what it takes, and when someone else got it, it sure affirmed in my heart that I don't. And we dig the hole deeper, and our perspective becomes even more corrupted. Because when our perspective is corrupted, it leads to comparison. Now, sometimes we look at other people and we say, you know what? Man, their family, they've got it all together. They've got four, five, six kids. They're on time everywhere. She looks, she looks good. You know, her, she's put together. Her makeup's on. And, and me, I, I've only got two kids. I'm like brought to tears every day. We're late everywhere. I'm wearing sweatpants. I haven't done my hair in five days. You know, and we're like, man, that family, they've got it all together. But my family, I can't even, I'm just eking by in my existence. I, I can't even... It's all I can do to show up to church on time. And it starts at 1045. Lord, help me. (laughs) Right? And we compare ourselves to one another. How about this one? Man, he's got a good job. They can afford a house and a Honda. And all I have can afford is a rental condo and a Cavalier. 
Come on, people. A house and a Honda, a condo and a Cavalier. That's clever. That's clever. And we're left feeling insignificant, unworthy. And we think to ourselves, man, if I could just get it together. And so what do we do? We we, we take this hole that we're in and we try to dig ourselves out. If I could just get it together. And so so we buy an electronic device to put our calendar on it. And we think, man, this will really help. We set a New Year's resolution and we drop it by January 30th. We thought that was supposed to help. Right? And for some of us, the insecurity is rooted so deep, you don't need a new electronic device. You don't need a new resolution. What you need is new perspective that comes from the God of the universe that says you're valuable simply because you're you. And that says that you count because you're created by him. You don't need anything else except the perspective of the Father. Listen to this. Jesus after Christmas, after he was born, grows up, and before he starts his ministry, he's called into the wilderness for temptation, where he resists that temptation and comes back and enters back into public life. The first thing that happens to him is his baptism. And this is what the Lord pronounces over Christ at his baptism. It's found in Matthew three seventeen. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. Now, hold on a minute. This is at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry. It's before his ministry has ever started. At this point in the gospels, Jesus has not performed a miracle. He hasn't healed anybody. He hasn't shared any profound word of truth, except to the devil who tried to, who tried to tempt him. His public ministry has not happened at all. And yet God pronounces over him, this is my son whom I love and I am well pleased with him. In other words, Jesus' value in the eyes of God was not on his accomplishments. And some of you need to learn the same thing. You think that a lack of accomplishment, as you compare your life to other people, you believe that your lack of accomplishment makes you less valuable. But I'm telling you again, the measuring stick is totally different of how you measure value. The world and culture measures your value on how you look and on what you accomplish. Basically, those two things. But God says, no, no, no. Your value is not based on what you accomplish. It's not based on how you look. For I created you and I knit you together in in your mother's womb. And I love you for who you are, not for what you do. And some of you need to get a hold of that today. And let me say this, too. Comparison is always skewed. Because you are comparing their highlight reel to your behind the scenes. Did you know that? Every time you compare yourself to someone, man, they got it all together. Man, they got that promotion. Man, they get, man that, that job just landed right in their lap. Probably not. Probably they were working really hard filling out a resume, turning it in a lot of places. But we're comparing their highlight reel to our behind the scenes. We see all of our junk and we see their highlight reel and we're like, man, I've never, I can never compare to that. 
Now, some people would see insecurity as a form of humility. It's a, in fact, it's the role of, of Christ followers to be um, humble and, and sort of fundamentally insecure because we're all sinners saved by grace and we ought to see ourselves as lowly people. For we're just all nothing but horrible, horrible sinners. Some people would say insecurity is a form of humility. I would argue that insecurity is a form of pride. Because ultimately, insecurity is making everything about you. And Gideon does this, right? Check this out. Gideon does this in verse 13. Gideon does this through all of his qualifiers, right? The angels come in, sat down in his presence. I'm not worried about the things you're worried about. Makes this great calling over his life. You are a mighty warrior. And then Gideon, in verse 13, has qualifiers. If, but, why, when, right? Check this out. Verse 13. Verse 13, he says, But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all of his wonders that our ancestors have told us about? When they said to the Lord, not bring us up out of Egypt. But now the Lord has abandoned us and he's given us into the hand of Midian. Gideon is making it all about him. But what about this? And where this? And why this? And if? And what is... What does the Lord say to him? Am I not sending you? See, what the Lord wants to do is he, and if in your insecurity that is ultimately a form of pride because everything is made about you, God wants to shift that and move it from being about you to being about him. He wants to change your perspective so that you can see out of the hole, but he also wants to change your perspective so that you don't dig a hole again. Right? He wants to say to you, it's not ultimately about you. It's ultimately about me. God says to Gideon, go in the strength that you have, that ultimately I've given you, and know this, I am sending you and I will be with you. It's not about you. It's about me. I'm the one that has proclaimed you a mighty warrior. I'm the one that is calling you to defeat the Midianites. I am the one that's raising you up. So stop making it about you and let's start making it about me. In other words, God wants you to drop the qualifiers. Some of you have this great calling on your life. God has pronounced this reality over you. He has said, this is how I see you. And it's a calling and and it's, it's seated in your heart. And yet you find yourself insecure. Can I ever really do that? And I believe that some of you, God has seated in your heart to be a life group leader. And your answer is insecurity. I can never do that. But God wants to take that calling in your life and change your perspective and say, listen, listen, listen. I am the one sending you. I am the one who will go with you. You're going into my battle, not your battle. Um, when I came to this church five years ago, it wasn't called Emmaus Road. It was called First Church of the Nazarene. And uh, it, it just needed new breath and new direction and new vision. And uh, the Lord has been so good to provide a, a core team of people from the Church of the Nazarene to help us make that transition. And they've been so good. And if you're here today, can I publicly honor you for the way that you have seen this vision through that God has given this church? I am so thankful for you and for all that you do. 
and continue to do. But let me tell you, transitioning a church is not easy. And so there would be times where we were trying to sell, we were trying to celebrate every win, man. As we were as we were transitioning, we were we were we were celebrating every single win. It didn't matter what it was or how small it was. We were like throwing a party to say, "Lord, thank you for what you're doing. God, you are good." But there would be times that, despite the celebrations, I would believe in my heart that really we're just we're just spinning a wheel, and this thing isn't really going anywhere. And I would be discouraged. And you know where my discouragement ultimately led? As I dug my hole, it led into it led to insecurity. And I'd say to myself, you know what? If I could preach like so-and-so, this transition would happen faster. There'd be more people in the seat if I could really preach like, what's his name? Or I would get into the trap of comparison, not only by comparing myself to other people, but I'd say, man, look at that church's worship set, man. They got lights and electric guitars and and they got all this stuff. I'm like, Lord, when are we going to get some lights? You know? You know, so I went out to Ace Hardware and I bought some colored lights and the Lord said, nice try. (laughs) And, (laughs) you know, and I'm like, and then, so I would look at their worship and I'd be like, man, Lord, when are we going to get a full band? And and, and thankfully the Lord provided leaders that helped us get a full band and we were so thankful for that and and all this stuff and and we would go for it. And then then I was like, Lord, man, look at that church they have such a nice facility and here we are we're stuck in this facility and i was like lord would you bring like an earthquake tornado missile i'm not picky you know we just need a new place to gather together and the lord said nice try because i remember i remember specifically how the lord spoke to me in regards to that i was comparing our facility i was like man you know what there was a season in my leadership where i believed that if we just had a nice building this place would blow up I'm like, oh, we, man, every dollar we have, every cent we have is going to go right into this building because that's the most important thing, man. We just got to have a nice place and got to be well heated and it's got to be green, you know, bring the solar panels on here and everything. And, and, and then I, I went to this conference that was at this church that was blowing up. I mean, just absolutely on fire. And, and I went to their men's restroom. And there was a handwritten sign that said, please hold the handle down for at least one minute to flush. <laughs> and, and I kid you not, the stall, I'm, I'm not a small guy, but I'm not a huge guy. The stall, I had to go in like this. And so then I kind of, you know, like I'm like this and I'm trying to aim the best I can. It's a, it's a bad situation. And in that moment, I didn't realize how personal this would all be, but... <laughs> In that moment, the Lord spoke to me and said, your building is just fine because look what I'm doing at this church and look at this men's restroom. It's not about the building, right? I got into this comparison game and I was making it about me. God, if I could preach well enough, if I could lead well enough, if our facility was the right thing, if we just had lights, you know, and all of this stuff, And the Lord said to me, stop making it about you. Because I have called you to this church. I have called your family to this city to minister here. I have called you to this place. It is my church, and I'm going to grow it. 
Because so stop making it about you because it's about me. And the Lord has continually worked on me through that. Because there'll be times where I slip into it. I dig myself a little, a little wine press and I say, Lord, if I was this way, man, if I just looked as good as so-and-so, if I had a nice haircut, more people would come. But I'm not willing to pay for it, so you've got to help me out with my supercuts haircut. <laughs> Draw the people in, you know. All this kind of stuff. It's not about me. It's about him. It's his church. And he will provide the growth. My prayer for you today is that you would come into contact with the tremendous love that God has for you. And whether you've known him and been following him for a long time, or whether you've never come to know him before, may you come to see how deeply he loves you. Let me give you a very practical freedom foundation to leave you with. Your freedom foundation for this week is, my father says, my father says, my father says I'm valuable. My father says I count. My father says I'm good enough. My father says I've been moved from slavery to sonship. My father says that I am a child of God. My father says, and you fill in the blank, and may you come to see how deeply and profoundly God loves you and how real the love of God is, that you may never find yourself in the hole of a wine press again, but that you may walk boldly in your life with confidence of this is who I am in Christ. This is who he's made me to be. This is what he has called me to be because all of those statements are about him. They're not about you.